half thousand negative thoughts on average for most of us a day, you times that over a year, there's 1.6 million negative thoughts a year. So I say to people, imagine if we could change that by 5, 10, 20% by building that better relationship in our mind. And that for me is mindfulness. Being able to witness those thoughts, recognize, oh, this is unhelpful, this is untrue. Okay, I wouldn't speak to my best friend the way that I speak to myself in my mind. How do I change that? Knowledge is knowing, wisdom is doing. You've all heard me talk about these values that everyone who's listening right now probably knows about, but are you actually doing them? There's all the science and data and stuff leads to it all, but are we actually doing it? We can always get better, we can always get more, but the real trick I've learned in life now and upon reflection is when we can just focus our thoughts and energy on the things we've already got. Our beliefs and our thoughts are so powerful and a lot of us are just kind of always thinking the negative, always assuming and expecting the negative to happen and then it attracts it towards them. But yeah, I just think once you can start to really attract the things that you want in your life and really try and put the things in place to get there, then it's possible. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right, we're back again. Another episode of Life, Money and Love. Um, we're going double. We're going back to back today. Um, so it's going to be a big day. I'm excited. It is a Friday that we're recording, so no better way to end the week uh, than with a conversation with Cooper Chapman. Now, as I said, we were chatting before, kind of been following your work for a little while, really big fan of everything you're doing. For those who who don't know you, ex-pro surfer for most of your life, 15 years plus, um, turned mental health advocate, mental health champion. You're doing some really awesome work with the Good Human Factory, also the host of the Good Humans pod. So heaps of stuff to dig into with your journey. But first of all, thanks for... Um, Thanks for making the time while you're here, dragging your whole life in up the office, up the stairs, the surfboard and all. So appreciate you making the effort. Hey, thanks for having me. Likewise, I've been following your work for the last year or so. I've seen your podcast pop up. I always am curious when I see new podcasts pop up who can withstand those first 20 episodes that you always <laughs> yeah. hear about. You lose a lot, but yeah, the conversations you've had, I've listened to a lot of them and I, yeah, I'm impressed by the way that you share your story, but also by your story as a whole, I think young Australians making not only a bunch of money, but making an impact in the world, making lives better with their products is amazing. So it's great to catch up. I'm looking forward to sharing my story with you and then we're going to swap over and I'm going to yeah. share your story with me on my pod. We'll so. be do, doing the flip. I think this is like the third, maybe the third or fourth time I've done the double with po- two podcasts. And I'm like, it's the best. You just like get the most value out of it. And it's like, it's funny you say that, oh, who's going to withstand the first 20 podcasts, whatever the stats are like 80, 90% don't make it past there. We were actually super ambitious when we launched the podcast for like the first month we're trying to do two episodes a week. Think about that, like from nothing to two episodes a week, editing, researching, booking. We lasted about three weeks and I realized, oh shit, maybe if you want to do this sustainably, it's got to be one a week, but this is like 75 or 76 episodes deep. So yeah, man, it's, um, it's, it's a fun ride. Not as far as you, what are you like 170 something or where are you at now? I'm guest 125 yep. came out today, but I've also got another like short form podcast, which maybe we'll talk about later. Mm. This thing, I have a community called the 1% club. Yep. Um, so I do a 15 minute episode a week solo. So I'm on like episode 85 of that. And then I also did a 12 month sober challenge last year. All of my 28 years old, I took off alcohol and I did like a weekly catch up, which was kind of an accountability tool mm. for myself kind of a way to just sort of bring people on the journey and hopefully inspire them. And then also from a business point of view to get extra downloads by having sure. an extra episode. So for a year last year, I did three episodes a week and I do all the editing myself. So Fine, it right. is quite the juggle, but I, um, yeah, I love it, man. As AI, because you were like, which as we we're chatting, you, you were still doing like the whole work by yourself, editing, clipping everything up Has AI helped you kind of get more stuff done in less time or. 
I haven't gotten super into the AI. The one thing that really helps is the auto captions. That's obviously yep, yep. a big one. Needing to put captions on videos is so important. Um, and for the first probably like five or six, ep- or no, maybe like 10 episodes that I captioned, I literally would go on Canva and listen to the episode, pause, type oh. what they wrote, and then export it as a transparent, like just a text, and then overlay everyone and have like the ugliest looking timeline. So there's definitely been a lot of things that I've learned. And then I also um, just heaps of stuff. I used to like find it really hard to get the audio synced up. And then I got I did a podcast with this guy. Have you heard of Byron Dempsey? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Byron, really cool guy. I came on his and he's like, I was telling him and he's like, you do know on Premiere Pro you can like highlight and just click synchronize and it syncs them. <laughs> so all these little things you learn along the journey make life easier. But I was telling you off air before, I've found a pretty good flow. I think now I could start outsourcing to someone else, but I feel like it would almost be the same amount of work for me to have to listen to it back and re-edit their stuff. But it is the next progression, but I, I love it. The best yeah. thing about the podcast is just the networking, getting to meet incredible people and get to hear their stories and learn from them. I mean, there's nothing better. hundred percent. And we'll, we'll get into the whole journey with the podcast. We are jumping a little bit ahead uh, to get there, but let's talk about growing up just for a little bit now. Grew up with three sisters uh, on the Northern beaches. Um, from what I've heard, you explain your childhood, I guess, because you've had a podcast and heard so many different stories as a, as a relatively normal, straightforward um, childhood. But talk to me about growing up on the beaches as the only brother with three sisters. What, what was that like for you? I love that you do your research. You know so much about my life. And I still <laughs> listen to a few. I do put a lot of content out, so a lot of people. It's know. quite easy. I, for it's very like easy to yeah. find about me. You could probably listen to the episode I did of myself when I on my own episode. Episode one hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I listen to that. There you go. Um, so yeah, I grew up on Sydney's northern beaches, Narrabeen. Uh, a very fortunate upbringing. I mean, definitely not upper class or anything, but never really went without. My dad was always really big on us. He would always say appreciation, not expectation. So he taught us from a young age not to put big expectation on things happening for us, but to really appreciate the good things that do happen in our life. So yeah, three sisters, one older, two younger. I played a lot of rugby growing up from like five till 10 or five till 13, really rugby union was my sport of choice. And surfing came in when I was about eight or nine, my dad started pushing me into some waves and yeah, life kind of took a turn. Once I went into surfing from 10 years old, I got sponsored and got to start competing on the sort of young Australian circuit and had a bit of talent pretty early, sort of was straight to the top of the division from 12s, 14s, 16s. And yeah, got to live a pretty nice life, to be honest. I'm still, my parents are still together. They still live in the same family home. I just came from there this morning. Um, so it's nice to have that family unit. And now that I speak to so many people and understand how privileged I really am just to have a family unit that is close together. Uh, I'm so grateful for that. But yeah, there's obviously the ups and downs that come with every childhood. But as a whole, I think I um, yeah, had a pretty privileged childhood. It's it's interesting you say that, that quote from your dad. Obviously, uh, <clears throat> for anyone that, that follows you and your content, one of your main messages is gratitude and like the power of gratitude. And what's that saying? So like appreciation, not expectation. Do you feel like from back then, even before you, you got into mindfulness and, and this whole mental health journey that you took on like as more of an adult or at least late teens when you start working with your sports psych, but do you feel like your dad was kind of that kind of mentality was the whole foundation of this gratitude within you? I think yes, but when I look back to my childhood, whenever he said that to me, I thought he was just being a scab and didn't want to buy me anything. He was just like, appreciate what you got, mate. Don't expect anything more. Yeah. So I always just used to think it was kind of because 
he was a bit, not a tight ass, but at times, yeah, we weren't financially a solid family. We got by, but it was never here. You get all the fancy stuff. I was like, no, nah, I appreciate what you got. So I used to think it was that when I was younger, but now I look back and reflect on it. And it was definitely just him teaching me that really valuable lesson of gratitude to really focus my thoughts and energy on what I've got rather than what I don't have. Cause we always can get bigger. We can always get better. We can always get more, but the real trick I've learned in life now and upon reflection is when we can just focus that thoughts and energy on the things we've already got. That's really true. But also I, w- I want to ask you kind of on the flip side, for me, one of the biggest tools in my life that has like made me who I am. And I attribute a lot of my success to like the visualization piece, which, which came later. But in terms of like expectation, I've always had really big dreams and always believed that that awesome things would happen to me. I really felt that. Did you have to growing up with that, did you have to later in life give yourself like permission to dream big and chase big goals or did you find that you were able to kind of marry gratitude but still be super ambitious at the same time? I think I definitely married it. I don't think gratitude takes away from ambition. And obviously that appreciation, not expectation comes in and maybe comes across away that, that little bit. But I mean, I was a top level athlete from a young age. I was super competitive. I always had big dreams and big goals and was supported along the way. But I think my dad would just always, yeah, stop me and say appreciation and expectation. I'll give you an example of when, for instance, I was sponsored by Ripco when I was about 10 years old or 11. And we used to go to a surf comp and I might've been winning the comp and doing really well. But then there was another kid sponsored by Ripco who was a bit lower ranked than me that had a newer wetsuit. And I'd complain to my dad, oh, bloody, he's got the better wetsuit, the newer version. I don't. I'm like, I rated that him. And he'd just say to me, appreciation, not expectation, mate. Be stoked that you've even got a free wetsuit. The kid over there doesn't have anything. So it wasn't from a lack of ambition putting that into me. It was just trying to say like, hey, no matter what you've got, just be appreciative of it. Yeah. So you got into surfing eight or nine. I know you, you, you're quite talented at rugby as well, like making rep teams and, and doing quite well with that. What was the point for you as this like – clearly pretty gifted athlete, um, natural at sports. Did you have to make this decision early on to like sack rugby and go all in with surfing? When, what was that moment? Where did that decision get made? I can, I can remember a very clear time where it sort of was like, yeah, I think surfing's a go. So when I was about 12 or 13, I was playing like rep rugby for like the Baringa Rats. Like I used to play with um, Clinton Gutherson, who's now the captain of the Eels. Was Joe's a massive Eels fan. So hey, love that. Yeah. <laughs> I used to pick Clint up and take him to training like two or three days a week. We played in Colorado Cougars together and then um, the Baringa Rats. And we had a lot of success. I loved it. We had a great time. But then I had these couple times where I'd have my surf comp regional or state titles in the morning and then I'd have a state gala day for rugby and I'd rock up with wet hair and sandy hair and miss the training <laughs> session. The coaches would get angry. And then I just kind of went, mm, do I want to get tackled by big dudes who are growing way quicker than me or do I want to go surfing? And the decision was pretty easy to make when I really started to think about it. Do I want to go to training and play footy every day or do I want to just go surfing? And yeah, the surfing was um, a good choice. But like I said, I, I was also at the very top of the division from a pretty young age. So I kind of had that pass set for me. Yeah, it's obviously easy if, if one, you're clearly like an outlier and an outperformer. But did you find that you actually enjoyed surfing more than, than playing rugby anyway? I think, yes, I, I think it was just for one, when you're doing good at something, it feels pretty good as well. Especially when you're young, right? And a lot of, yeah, and we'll talk about this as we go through the chat. A lot of my a lot of my identity, a lot of my personal value came from external validation when I was younger. When I was doing well good in surf comps, I'd get pats on the back and I'd feel good about myself. And I love playing team sports, but you probably got that little bit more ego kick when you're winning individual stuff. So I don't know if that played into the decision to leave, but I think it was just to the point where my dad's like, 
do you want to go surfing or do you want to go play football? And I was just like, I grew up at North Narrabeen, which is a very world renowned surf beach. It's had some of the best surfers in the world to have ever come out of there. So I had a bit of a clear path and I sort of had that vision and that real direct inspiration right next to me, those role models around me at the beach. Whereas footy, we didn't really have any connections to anything other than just a local footy club and stuff. So I was just like, you know what, let's, um, let's go that surf route. Yeah. And like, yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense as a boy from, from the beaches to, to take that life. But to be sponsored by Rip Curl 10 years old, clearly shit's happening pretty quickly. Like I imagine like you must be, and I don't mean this in like a disrespectful way, but you imagine you're walking into school with a massive head sponsored by Rip Curl, got you, got your full gear. Do you remember that moment? Like 10 years old, do you remember the first time you got sponsored and, 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 and how you felt internally? I have now, I haven't been asked this question in a while. I can't remember the time I got sponsored by Rip Curl, but I just remember being a kid. It's so funny. I used to like get, my dad would get the email saying, oh, you got a new box of clothes coming. And I remember I used to like, when I knew that it was going to come one of the days, I'd run up, I live on like a hill at home. That's probably like a 1K up, straight up hill <laughs> to get home. And I used to run up the hill trying, when I get home and be like, oh, is it there? Oh, damn, it's not there today. Um, but yeah, it was just so cool being a young kid getting that. And like you said, it does come with at times a bit of inflated ego, but I was pretty lucky once I got to high school, I had a pretty good group of mates and not many of them surfed. So no one really cared really about my surfing. But then once I progressed and at 14, won an Australian title and got to represent Australia all around the world in, um, yeah, throughout high school, maybe a bit of ego came in then. There used to be like signs out the front of the school, like Cooper Australian champ and all this stuff. And looking back, I feel like there was definitely a bit of ego and I would act very differently than I do now, but I feel like I could have maybe been worse as well. I feel like I was still a pretty good person. Yeah. And I actually think that it's, that it's a good thing. Cause as a kid, you look at people now, I feel like way more people struggle. Like, I feel like if you've had a, like, let's just, let me relate to my experience. Like I was really good at school, top of my classes most of the time, pretty good at sport, nothing like you. But so I feel like because, and when you're young, external validation does have a lot of effect because really, are you mature enough to talk yourself through all that. I don't really feel like you are. So I feel like having that external validation helps build confidence. And I feel like to have all those experiences where you're building confidence, getting reinforced, getting told that you're good, even though for some people, if it takes over and the whole identity gets wrapped into it and ego can become a problem, like a lifelong thing, but I would much rather be a little bit too confident and, and, and have things go well. And then as you get a little bit older, more mature, realize, huh, I want to be a good person. Like humility comes into it. I don't I feel like that's an easier transition than most kids have horrible experiences through school and high school. And it's like the struggle to build self-confidence and self-worth from there is something that like, there's no road, there's, there's, there's teaching and there's a lot of things people can try, but for some people it can take years and years and years and they never find that thing that makes them feel confident. Mm. So do you feel like it, regardless if there was a bit of ego, surely it was a massive like net positive to be able to have those experiences. Yeah, for sure. I've never actually thought about it like that. I don't know if you've even thought about it until you just started saying that, but I think that makes a lot of sense that building confidence can be quite hard, especially when people go through traumatic experiences and have that real lack of self-esteem, lack of discipline and whatnot through their upbringing. And they just don't have those role models to help them cultivate that um, confidence. But yeah, like you said, I guess having a bit of talent and a, bit of profile and that success at a young age does build that ego. And yeah, I'm very lucky that I learned some lessons in my early twenties and started to get a big realization as to who I wanted to be as a human. And it didn't, and I feel like that ego got pushed back down pretty quickly. So it wasn't like that for too long, but yeah, I think that way 
is a far quicker and easier way to find sort of inner peace than kind of going the other way. Cause you see so many people lacking confidence and it pains me to see people who are just too scared and fear failure so much that they're unwilling and paralyzed to make any decision. So yeah, I feel like, yeah, very lucky that maybe I've learned those lessons because you do see a lot of people though, who are successful young and then keep that ego for a long time and are pretty shitty to be around. Yeah. yeah we, we all know people like that, but do you think that having three sisters in a way kept your feet on the ground? And like, did you, do you feel like, what was the main thing you took away from that? Because I feel like I've, I've just got a younger brother. I, I wish I, like, I wish I had sisters as well, but like, what, what do you feel was like the main gift of, of being growing up with three sisters? I think upon reflection now, probably just emotional intelligence. I was never, I feel like I'm a very, not a timid guy. Like I'll stand up for myself, but I never have been in a fight in my life. I never had that brotherly fighting thing. I mean, I played footy and stuff and grew up at a beach. It was very localized and aggressive. So I'm not a pussy, I wouldn't say, but I also feel like I have quite a feminine side and quite the intelligence to sit with people and talk to them. And I think that came from, yeah, growing up with three sisters and not really having that men rivalry in the house. So maybe that's probably one of the qualities that I think I've pulled from having sisters. It's a positive. I love it. I think that's such a great thing as well. Cause yeah, like it's so easy, particularly as a, as an athlete and you get so into that competitive headspace for that to take over and become Mm. everything. And, and if someone doesn't pull up that handbrake for you, like you said, you're getting later into your teens, it's it's very easy to kind of lose control of that. But let's get into that surf journey. As you said, like, when did it start getting serious from age 14 when you were in the national national comp? Yeah. So I won. So in like junior surfing, there's sort of, you do like under 12s, 14s and 16s is kind of like the junior circuit around the country called Grom comps. And then in the under 16s and 18s, they have the Australian titles for like junior titles. And when I was 14, I was in the under 16s, kind of the younger year of the division. And I won the title over at Margaret river. And that sort of, when you win the title, you get an automatic spot in the four person team to go to the world titles. Um, so that first year I kind of like bypassed the selection cause I won and got to go to Ecuador when I was like 15 to surf in world titles, which is pretty cool when you're 15 to go to <laughs> Ecuador to surf. Um, and that was when I sort of went from being sponsored by rip curl. A few things weren't, I wasn't happy there. Some of the team managers weren't really aligned with who I was. And then I got poached by Hurley and that was where stuff, I guess, started to get somewhat more serious, started to get paid a little bit of money when I was like 15 then the following three years, I qualified for that Australian team as well. So my four years through high school, I got to go to Ecuador, Panama, Peru, and New Zealand. Um, yeah. And represent Australia, which is pretty special when you're in high school, getting to wear the green and gold. And so cool, there's only bro. four people in your division in the country that get to do it. So to do it all four years is something pretty special. I don't think many people have made it the team all four years. So that was pretty cool. And something I look back on that I'm so grateful for, but that was really where I was like, okay, it wasn't like a question mark. Should I follow the surf career? It was kind of, okay, you're already on your way. You're sort of starting to get paid You're on the um, series and doing pretty well already once you get past that under 18. So I just kind of knew once I was finishing school, I was already going to definitely follow surfing for a few years. So that was nice to not be making that decision. Like you see a lot of kids struggle with like, oh, what am I going to do after school? I already had that made for me. Yeah. All right, guys, just quickly, I've got some news. I've spent close to the past 18 months building the ultimate program that takes you through the complete process, and I mean the complete process of launching and scaling your very own e-commerce brand from zero 
all the way up to a million dollars plus per year. And now with this program, what you're going to get access to is 15 modules with over 100 training videos and 23 hours of in-depth content, taking you through everything you need to know to build a successful e-com brand. And this is the important part. This isn't just stuff that you can look up on YouTube. This is stuff I've taken from real lessons and experiences building Happy Skin Co. from zero all the way up to an eight-figure per year brand. You're going to get access to loads of custom tools, templates, and calculators that I've used to build and run Happy Skin Co. There's going to be one-on-one mentoring with myself and other expert coaches, and there's also weekly group Q&A calls with myself to make sure you're feeling completely supported throughout the entire process. And now what I've learned from consulting to everyone from people starting their very first e-commerce brand all the way up to brands already doing seven figures plus per year is that there's a process and a framework to follow if you want to be successful with e-com. Now, if this is something you're interested in, hit the link below and go to join.viralbrandbuilder.com. All the information's there and you can book a call directly with me. Otherwise, send me a DM and we can chat there. Anyway, let's get back to the pod. That that experience you had, I feel like is incredible. Like unique experiences create unique people and that's what makes people so interesting. Like, do you remember... Because traveling, even whatever age, is, is life changing. But going on so many international trips while you're in your while you're in your teens, while you're still in school, do you remember? I don't know. It's different because like we think so much deeper now, and like the meaning behind these things. So thinking back all those years, it might be difficult. But do you remember like changing your perspective of the world or what you want to do with your life after going and having those experiences so young? I think I was just very aware of how much else is out there. I was very lucky to spend a lot of time in Indonesia throughout my teen years. I think I found an old passport the other day and I think I went to like Indonesia, like Bali, Sumatra, all around there, different surf trips, like eight times between the age of 13 and 18, which is like pretty cool. And most of the times without my parents. So as much as it was amazing getting to experience the cultures, I think for me it was just about growing up. I got to become a lot more mature traveling with team managers, mates from the age of 15, 16 without parents and having to travel is, yeah, it takes a bit of maturity. It takes a little bit of discipline and I um, yeah got to do that from a young age. So I think that was one of the biggest things, not only seeing the different cultures and places and people around the world, how different we all are and how yeah privileged we really are in Australia, I think was a big one for the gratitude sort of mindset. But also, yeah, just trying to, I just call it traveling is like the university of life. You get to experience so much else out there. And if you've only been in Australia, like we're actually such a tiny population, like we're the weird outliers. Like I was just in Europe in June and I know you were as well. We think we're normal, but then you go over there and all these major cities and everywhere else, they're normal. We're the like kind of weird ones. So, so I, we're so far away yeah. as well. And like you, you have conversations with people like, where are you from? Oh, Australia. Oh, I've, I've never even thought about going there. Like it's like, it's, we, and I feel like as well, cause I've had a, a bunch of athletes on like say footy players, NRL plays. Uh, we actually had Sandor Earl on and he was saying he, he ended up getting suspended for four years and that was had some time away from the game. So he went traveling and he realized how insignificant it is in the, in the whole world, like global world, you know, environment. And it made him realize, holy shit, like I don't need to be, identifying as this, you know, NRL footy player to be happy. And it's like, it's, you can't, you can't get these like unlocks that you get unless you do it. Mm. So it's really interesting. Did you ever like, did you ever miss home? Did you ever miss your parents? Was it ever difficult to to spend that much time away or you just fucking loving it? I mean, I loved it. It was sick. I was traveling with all my best mates, usually all around the world and still got to spend a lot of time at home. So it was a nice balance, especially those first couple of years after school, getting paid decent money to surf well enough to support my career and not have to get a job. So 
when I was at home, I'd spend a lot of time with the family and probably be away like six months a year, home six months a year. So I still got a lot of family time. I always knew that I was coming home and that was something that I always loved. Like I'd hear people who go and live overseas and I was like, you guys are crazy. How could you go and do that? And people look at me like that. You're away so much, but it's like, yeah, but I always knew I was coming home. I always knew I had that ticket to come back to Australia, which is like anyone who travels a lot will tell you that the best thing ever is when you come home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so you spent, you spent 10 years in the top 100. What's that like is like, obviously, cause the top 32 is the world, world yep. turfy tour, whatever. What's the top 100 league called? So there's the top 32 is the world tour. And then there's the, what, when I first got there, it was called actually when I was got there, it, it was called the prime tour. Mm -hmm. So that was like the, so then the top hundred would get a spot in the prime tour. So it'd be like a few of the 32 guys who wanted to try and double dip in case they fell off the tour would do my tour. And then it would be kind of anyone ranked from 30 to 120 in the world would be on this next tour. And then there's like lower level ones to get into that. But I did well in world juniors and kind of bypassed having to do the early tour and got straight in. So I was kind of fluctuated between the highest I got was on my, so the top 10 on that tour replaced the bottom 10 on the world tour at the end of each year. So it's 22 stay on tour, 10 leave. And on my tour, top 10, make it on. So I was on that tour for like, nine years and the highest I got, I think was 23rd. So I was like 13 or like that year, I think it went down to 13. So I was like 10 spots away from getting it. Um, and then I was kind of fluctuated anywhere between there. So if you kind of base that on, so I was 10 spots away. So that's the 32 that are on give or take a few. So I would have been ranked maybe like 45th in the world that year. But then a few other years I was sort of ranked between that 30 and a hundred. So yeah, anywhere between 30th and 130th in the world for, the better part of 10 years, which I had a long time, I'd look at my surf career and go, oh, I didn't make it to the top. Like it's a bit of a failure of a career. And that's almost how the surf world looks at it. Everyone's trying to get to that world tour. And then I just got to this point where I was like, you know what? I can look back at my career and be like, oh, I didn't make it. Or I can look back and go, I traveled the world and went surfing with my friends for 10 years. I made it. Like what, what else did I really want? Maybe a few more trophies would have been nice, but I traveled the world surfing with my best friends for 10 years. Like I won. Also think as well, like when you're in the ultra competitive state, it's it's easy to not, not see how amazing the accomplishment is, but think about how many million people surf around the world to mm. be in the top 50, you know what I mean? is an incredible achievement in of itself. Talk to me about like, um, the emotional highs and lows of that journey. I, I know there was a big one that I want to talk to you about when, when, when you lost like your, your major sponsor, but I don't know if that's jumping ahead. What was like some pivotal emotional moments, like the closest you got? How did you react to that once you were the, the closest time? Was that like a really motivational thing for you or you were you like getting like fed up? Like, fuck, I'm so close. I'm so close. What do I need to do to take the next step? I'll answer both like that, what you said there about losing a sponsor because it kind of comes under the same banner of when I got really close. So the year that I got 23rd on the tour, my best year on the tour was when I got an email from Hurley saying, hey, we've given you your chance for three, four years. We've supported the journey. We know you're getting really close. But unfortunately, honestly, we don't think you're going to make it, which is very hard to hear when you're 23 years old. You just had your best year yet. Okay, I'm going to make it next year. And then you get your $50,000 contract ripped away and get told, hey, we'll give you five and you can come and do the regional tour instead of the international and come work for us in the office. And I was just like, Phew. okay. So then it's like, they don't believe in me. Why should I believe in myself? So that was a really hard time. And there was definitely a lot of resentment and, like my manager at the time was like, we'll find you something else. And then nothing else came. So there was like empty promises from managers, which kind of added to it. Like, Oh, I'm not worthy. 
And then it, it was probably like a year where I was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to give it up. Like I'm, I'm so close. Mate, I'll go get a job and I'll work full time to sort of fund the career. So I started working at like Manly Surf School. Incredible guy, Matt Grange has helped me a lot throughout my whole career. So I started working there and it kind of built a bit more hunger, but it also had a bit of a pretty sour mindset where I'd see other guys who were ranked below me who weren't surfing anywhere near as good as me. And I'd be getting paid all this money, especially from places all around the world. So there was like this, oh, kind of resentment against the whole situation and I was working full time. And then I went from working in a surf school to working as um, a laborer doing landscaping for a friend of mine. So I was doing like 40 to 50 hours a week, trying to save as much money as I could to then go pay for the next surf trip and still chase the tour all year. Cause like I said, I'd have about six months at home. So I was like, all right, I need to make up $50,000 in six months. Cause that was about what it cost to travel on our tour each year by working as a tradie. So for t- I did that landscaping for about eight months and then I did carpentry for about 18 months. Um, and it was funny once when I was landscaping was when my mindset really shift from like, why me to, I was sitting on the beach in South Africa one day and I'd just been like slaving away landscaping, like why me? Like these other guys are getting paid money and sitting on the beach about to paddle out in my heat. And I remember those words my dad said to me, appreciation, not expectation. And then I was sitting there and I was like, as much as I hate that I had to work to get here digging holes, all my mates who I work with at home are still at home digging holes and I'm here surfing like pretty like appreciation, not expectation. So there's definitely some moments that where there was like shitty mindset, but then there's also that shift in mindset, I think was where maybe it started this idea of maybe not wanting it as much because I was just appreciative of it. I'm like, I can like have this toxic mindset of why me? Or I can just be like, you know what? I'm grateful to be here. I have a good time. And then, yeah, I did like another couple of years still on tour with that and, but just enjoyed myself a lot more. There's a question I want to ask you um, on that process. I want to know as, as, a, as like an elite level athlete, I find, I found that the further I've gone with like my inner growth and my perspective and my gratitude and realizing what's really important about life and maybe like all the biggest ambitions I have or like, and this is something I've spoken about on the podcast with people, nearly everyone's biggest ambitions come from some form of lack or insecurities in, in your childhood or early in life, why you wanted it so bad. And as I've grown it and realized that like, I don't need all these external validations to be happy and what I have is enough. And you know all those motivations that, that used to like drive me don't really matter anymore. It's like, how do you balance that? Like gratitude and perspective with like, cause when you're an elite athlete, that mindset, that competitiveness, if that just drops two, 3%, that can be the difference. Did you, did you feel that as you went deeper, that, that last little like 2% hunger to, to make sure you succeeded because it meant the world to you. And as you realize, no, it doesn't actually mean everything. Did you feel that slight competitive edge, just 2% drop? Absolutely. It was uh, the last few years of my career. I kind of slowly, I mean, I still was up there and had some moments and had some big results, but as you kind of alluded to there, that mindset of like, you know what, it doesn't really matter. And I started to, recognize that a bit more. I was like, well, I can either travel the world and hate every time I lose, or I can travel the world and enjoy the travel and enjoy the friendships and enjoy the surfing. And I think it did lose a bit of the competitive edge, but at the same time that piled on with working full time as a tradie to go on my comps when all the guys who I'm competing with at the top are training, working with coaches full time, like 
that combined with the mindset is very hard to compete against those guys. So as much as I look back and go like, oh, I wish I maybe got onto that world tour, I also think the way that I view the world and the values that I've now really understood that I want to live by have just made me a way healthier and happier person. And that's what matters to me more than a champ, you know what I mean? A trophy. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's difficult because that, that is your world. And like someone like me or someone who I I'm not obviously like a surfy guy, unfortunately. Um, but like so you grow, you've grown up in that world and some people can see like you, you surfing against Kelly Slater and Mick Fanning be like, wow, what was that moment like for you? But I imagine for someone that's grown up in that world, it's just another day, right? Yeah, the surfboard's very small. So I've got to, I'm like, I mean, any surfer that you can name, I can guarantee I've either surfed a heat with them or have a friendship with them of some sort, which is um, really cool to know yeah, just how nice it is. But I kind of forgot the question. No, it was just like that, that ex- those experiences. Where it's like, yeah, it was normal. It's just, it is what it is, but everyone's, and it, the more, and you'd know this from doing the podcast now, the more you talk to anyone that are very at the top of sports, the more you realize everyone's human. Like as soon as you put anyone on a pedestal is when they start looking down on you. And I wish I knew that earlier. I learned that recently and I was like, it's so true. As soon as you put someone on a pedestal, it's when they start looking down on you. So now I just treat everyone equally and mm. that's where you actually get to build relationships with people rather than just have them as a hero. And I found that with the podcast, like I had, um, I was telling you a producer before I had Jack doing on, who's like a F1 reserve driver and he had Mick Schumacher hanging out with him last week and we'll go on surfing and I'm a big F1 fan. So I'm hanging out with like two so reserve cool. drivers and Michael Schumacher's son. But I was like, you know what? they're going to look at me weird if I treat them any differently. So I just treat them normal and now we're good mates. So it's like the more that you can start to not see anyone as anything special, respect people, but don't put them on a pedestal. hundred percent unfairly while we're on Mick Schumacher dropped. I feel like from F1, I'm pretty big F1 fan as well. I feel like he should have held his seat, like young kids, so much potential, but yeah, you know what? I mean, he's a reserve driver for Mercedes, so hopefully he gets yeah, another Yeah, hopefully soon. he gets a shot. Yeah, because I actually think he's talented. It's not just his last name, but. Yeah, yeah he's get, amazing. Yeah, well, for that's sure. Like, you'll have to go listen to my one I did with Jack Doohan, who's Mick Doohan, who's um Australian five-time consecutive um, MotoGP t- champion, or it used to be called 500cc, but they, I thought like, oh, they just would have been like real gifted and just given like sort of easy Golden treatment or whatever it's called but yeah. listening to his story and his journey and the progress and the coaches he works with and the dedication and everything that's gone into his journey i'm like oh it's so funny we come up with these preconceptions because it makes us feel a little bit better that that person made it because they had more opportunity but no they work hard they're like so dialed into their training their focus neither i don't think either of them drink at all like jack was like no nah, i'm like I want to give myself every opportunity to make it to the top of this sport. I haven't had a drink ever. I'm just like focused. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. And as well, that's the beauty of having these conversations and having a podcast. Like the, again, some people will, will look at people that are successful, have a lot of money and be like, it must've been so easy. They must've been gifted it. Tell you what, like I'd say 90% of the people that I've had on the podcast that have successful businesses came from like, you know, similar to us, lower middle-class families didn't have a lot and that actually helped them become what they did. But there's just that misconception that it that it's really easy when it's just not the case. But for you, you're getting to that point, you're starting to mature, you're, you're becoming really aware, like, fuck, no, this is really cool. At what point do you start shifting towards this mental health advocacy? What's And then, every, and then what would become obviously the good human factory? What's the trigger for you to, to change and, and, and chase that path? I'll give you a bit of a backstory because it'll set up why I got into mental health. And I, I say this in all my keynotes, I'm pretty good at delivering this now. So <laughs> I, uh, I lost an uncle when I was quite young to suicide. It was something quite difficult for myself and my family to deal with. 
But then I watched my dad throughout my teen years kind of suffer a little bit with depression, anxiety, a bit of alcoholism. So I was always very aware, oh, maybe I'm going to run down this family history of mental illness. And my mom and different people would mention that, oh, yeah, it's like hereditary sometimes. So I was always very fearful, I think would be the word. But at the same time, I'm living this extraordinary life, but at times struggling with my mental health because I was basing so much of the identity on the pro surfer. And when the results declined, once I got from the junior to the international tour, I found myself in a bit of a precarious place, a bit lost. I was too scared to go and ask a psychologist for help because I was like, I don't have any reason to go see a psychologist. I'm living an extraordinary life, but I was also struggling. So I started to develop a few skills that sort of helped me out a bit. And then I did speak to my sports psychologist about it. And he's like, mate, don't worry. So many of us base our self-worth, our identity is all around external validation, is all around our career, our achievements. And he said, I want you to start living your life by what your values are. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, what are your values? And I was like, I don't really know. And then I was like, I guess kindness, respect, honesty, all these ones mum and dad tell us about. And then he said, yeah, but how well are you actually living to those values? Surfing's what you do, but it's not who you are. So I was so lucky to learn that lesson from a young, uh, in my early 20s. So from there, I just started to read a lot of books, self-development stuff and discover like who I am. And he said to me, I was like, where do I find it? My values. And he's like, read some other people's stories, listen to podcasts, um, watch documentaries and with an open mind, watch other people's stories. And my dad always said to me, it's great to learn from your mistakes, but it's even better to learn from somebody else's mistakes. So I started to find all different stories and people's journeys. And I'm like, Ooh, I like that value. He looks happy. He looks successful. I'll pull that. So I started to develop that. So there's a backstory. And then something happened four years ago. I had never had any intention to be a mental health advocate or go into public speaking around mental health. I'll give you one last bit of the story before I get to why I'd run a few surf camps and I'm struggling to make money trying to, when I was working at the surf school, I was like, okay, what can I do? So I ran these surf camps for a few junior kids. And during the camp, we did a whole bunch of things. But one of the things we did because I did it was meditation and visualization. After the camp, a lot of the parents said to myself and my dad, like, oh, the kids really said they loved the meditation thing. Cool. Once again, no thought to start a business around mental health. But then Sophia, my younger sister, came home from school one day and I've got three sisters um, and we're all sitting around the dinner table like we do every night and Sophia in year 12 at high school at the time said that a boy in a year had taken his own life. And I was just like, fire, hearing of youth suicide is like the worst thing ever. And I looked up some of the stats and went, wow, this is a massive problem. I didn't really, wasn't too aware of it and chucked up an Instagram story, wrote a platitude or two and life went on like most of us. Two weeks later, sitting around the dinner table, same situation. Sophia, my younger sister says another boy in a year had taken his life. And that was when I, I just remember sitting there just like far out. I can't sit around and do nothing about this. I'm living this extraordinary life, traveling the world as a pro surfer. And there's kids in my local area struggling that much that they can't deal with their mental health. So I kind of made it my mission from that day. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was like, I just want to maybe to help some people with their mental health. And since then I've spoken to close to 30,000 students, thousands of corporates, quit surfing and now I do it full time and I'm sure we'll go through the journey a bit now. A hundred percent. I've got so much no, I want so to ask questions. you about Sorry, this. Process. I kind of gave you a big No, no, no. I line. love it. I love it. Like now, you don't realize sometimes all the things in your life are leaning, leading to a point. Yeah, that's. I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. And I talk about that, like, that's more like a motto to live by in a way. And, and look, I don't have definitive proof, obviously, scientific proof. No one does that everything happens for a reason, right? But I feel like... I can choose to believe that and it's going to have a really big positive on my, on my life. And in particular, just on the topic, mental health, my mental health, it's like, if you think life is random and all the bad things that happen to you are just, you know, 
you're unlucky, you know, you're, you're cursed, all these sort of things. But it's like, if you can really see the negative things that happen in your life or the challenges that come up as it, it's not failure, like it's a redirection. You're learning the lessons you're meant to mm. go and everything is building you into the person you're meant to be. Like you said, starting to like, you lost your sponsor, you're, you're sliding down the ranks. It might seem like the worst thing ever, but it's led you on to this other chapter. And, and if you, with, looking at you and your purpose of your life, like if, if you continue doing this for another 50 years, what are you going to look back of and think, oh, that was my purpose. I'm so glad I did that. Your 10 years like surfing or the impact you've been able to have with like mental health over like decades and help hundreds and thousands and thousands of students. Like, do you know what I mean? But at the mm. time, I'm sure when you lost your sponsor, you're not thinking, sweet, this is, you know, pushing me to where I want to be anyway. Exactly. It's, um, yeah, I'm a big believer in that too. You don't know why. And, and if you believe it works in your favor life or if you believe it doesn't, you're right. It's kind of our beliefs and our thoughts are so powerful. And a lot of us are just kind of always thinking the negative, always assuming and expecting the negative to happen. And then it attracts it towards them. But I don't know, I'm sure you're pretty spiritual kind of like yeah. me in ways like that. It sounds like the way that you were talking already today. We're very on the same wavelength about a lot of things, but yeah, I just think once you can start to really attract the things that you want in your life and really try and put the things in place to get there, then anything's possible. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I think though the key, and, and this is why it's difficult for some people um, is I can say that and explain that like that. But like when I say, I believe it, no, I really believe it. Like that's really how I live. Like I believe that everything happens for a reason, the challenges for a reason. So if you can start to slowly get that like shift in your head, if that's not the way you think it has been one of the top three things that changed, you know, the perspective and, and my, the, the trajectory of my life and, and how much control I have over my, myself and my mental health, which yeah, I was probably early mid twenties when I realized that mental health isn't something you can take for, for granted. It's something you have to work on. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, it's like, it's a battle every day. It doesn't have to be a hard battle every day, but if you're not onto it and making the right positive decisions, it's really easy for stuff to unravel. Yep. Now you just mentioned values and I know what you talk, a lot of what you talk about is like helping people find their values. Now in a second, I'll ask you, you know, some questions or processes that you encourage people to explore their own. But I want to, I want to ask you personally, when you did that exercise and it, it might've developed over the last couple of years as you matured, but what, what, what are your values that you landed on that you like to live by? Yeah. So the, so the five that I talk about in my keynote and the five that I encourage, I think are universal that we should all add to a little bit have as our values is the first one's responsibility. Once I started to take responsibility and build some accountability around my life, it changed instead of blaming people. Like I always say maturity is when you stop blaming and some people never stop blaming and they're not that mature in my mind. Once you can start to go, okay, what can I do to get myself out of these situations? Where can I, step one's building the awareness that, you know what, we do have a choice. We can make choices that'll direct our life. And step two is action. We actually have to do something. We can't just hope that things are going to change. We actually have to do stuff. So step one's responsibility. My second value is gratitude. Gratitude, as you've heard throughout the chat, is something important to me. I got drilled into it since I was a kid. And now that I've interviewed many neuroscientists, done a lot of research into um, a lot of self-development books I've read over the last few years. And the more people I hear that practice gratitude, it almost always correlates with them being happy and healthy people. So gratitude is something I practice every day. Um, empathy. Empathy is a trait that I think we all need to have a bit more of. We need to learn how to listen a bit better. We need to learn how to just, when we see somebody do something that we don't understand or we don't agree with, just sort of go, why are they doing this? What's their situation? What have they gone through? And somebody said to me once, if you lived every day in that person's life and in their mind, you would have acted the exact same way that they would have. 
And when I said that, I heard that, I was like, it's so true. Like we only live our lives. We don't know what other people are going through. We don't know what's going on in their mind, in their body, in their past life. So trying to not have judgment is so important. So that's empathy. Um, then mindfulness. Once again, the more I research in this area, the more I realize people who are healthy, people who are happier, people who can be present with people who can sit with their thoughts a little bit and not have to distract themselves. So mindfulness and meditation as a practice is super important to me trying to find those moments each day to just slow down. I mean, we have 6,000 thoughts a day and for most of us, 75% are negative and 95% are repetitive. So it's like four and a half thousand negative thoughts on average for most of us a day, you times that over a year, there's close to like, I mean, I got to do the math on that. I keep talking about it now. <laughs> we need my Jamie in the corner. What's yeah, the math on that? Joe, do some maths. <laughs> so what, four and a half thousand times 365. Yeah. Is. Is. We'll put in the thinking music. Dun, 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 dun. Come on, Joe. You're... Four and a half thousand. No. Yeah. Four and a half thousand times 365. Wow. Bang. So there you go, four and a half thousand negative thoughts uh, um, day on average for us, 1.6 million negative thoughts a year. So I say to people, imagine if we could change that by five, 10, 20% by building that better relationship in our mind. And that for me is mindfulness, being able to witness those thoughts, recognize, oh, this is unhelpful. This is untrue. Okay. I wouldn't speak to my best friend the way that I speak to myself in my mind. How do I change that? meditation is one of the best ways that I've discovered to actually sit with them, to actually witness those thoughts. So mindfulness. And then my last value that I love is kindness. Kindness. I wish we got taught at school that all the data and all the science leads to kinder people are happier people. And I just never got told that at school. So I just talked to people about being kind to yourself, certain things like, oh, learning to breathe through your nose down to your belly, actually doing a bit of research into what are some healthy habits to have, um, being kind to others. It's so funny that when we're kind to others, it makes us feel really good. But then quite often about 70% of us, I reckon statistically, when somebody's kind to us, we go, Oh, I don't deserve that. Or gives officers a gift or a compliment. We feel undeserving. So I say to people, when someone offers you a gift or a compliment from now on, just say, thank you. It encourages them to give more, which makes them feel good. And then I finished talking about um, being kind to the environment always in my keynotes because I used to, I'd pick rubbish up, throw it in the bin. I'd sort of look around. It was kind of ego driven. Did anyone see me do it? External validation. But now I pick up a bit of rubbish, throw it in the bin. I don't care if anyone sees me do it. It makes me feel good that I'm cleaning the world up a little bit. So I used to have to sort of win a surf comp when I was a junior to get spikes of being happy and get this well-being feeling. And now I throw rubbish in the bin and practice all these values. It's like so different living with external validation compared to values and it's changed my life. And yeah, hopefully people listening might start to reflect and ask themselves in their head that question that my sports psych said to me, like, what are your values? But more importantly, how well are you living to them? I think that's such a good point. And on that kindness thing as well, like for me, if, we, if I used to like, oh, let's, we had a really good month and made however much money, like we could do a million dollar month and, and that would used to feel good. But now even like the excitement that would come with that, that was cool. But if I'm down in the shops and I have like a five minute chat with some old, old man, old woman, and like, they tell me a bit of their story and they leave with a really positive experience. And like, I feel like kind of like store a little bit of faith in humanity for how they see the young generation and how they can be open having those conversations, dude, I feel way better just doing those little things than, than any external, you know, big money making or status thing. It's like the quiet moments where it's just you. That's what really makes you happy. Mate, I just got an Uber here from um where, I, where my family lives in Narrabeen. It took me like an hour and I had a bit of work that I had to get done. I had to book my flight to get home this afternoon and I was just like, I always make sure I say hi to the guy who's driving it. And I just got having a chat with him and he was a really nice guy. And we ended up chatting the whole time and he said something and we, we bounced around heaps of things, but something kind of going off what you just said then, he was like, 
yeah, I'm retired. I used to work in um, computer engineering. I, m- I sold my business, made a bunch of money. And I was thinking in my head, why is this guy bloody driving Ubers? But he's like, but now I drive Ubers because if I didn't, I'd just be calling a mate every day and go to the pub and drink beers. So I listened on a podcast or on the radio to this psychologist talking about this human spe- behavior specialist talking about how important having conversations with his people are. He's like, I live at home by myself. And if I didn't do this Uber driving, I just try and make sure I have two conversations with people that are more than five minutes a day where I'm actually present with them. And he's like, it saves my life. I'd be an alcoholic at the pub if not. But now I drive Uber, not for the money, obviously, but just to have conversations with people. And I was like, good on you, mate. Power like, of connection, right? Oh, it's amazing. I had a great Uber ride out here. It's sick. Yeah. Um, sometimes those random conversations and, and, and that's something I've noticed re- recently, like over the last year, but particularly in, uh, while we're in, while we're in Europe, which I only got back about a month ago because I'm so, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, like, because a lot of people, like everyone's busy these days, I get it, but I've always been a very, um, like I'm, I'm naturally an outgoing person. Right. And I have been my whole life, but then since when I got into like the professional workspace, so like I did, I was an actor for five years, which was very, you know, people, blah, blah, blah communication. And then I, after that, I went to sales for a couple of years. So it's like interactions and meeting people really started to feel like work. And it was a skill I know I had, but it started to feel like, Oh, I don't want to have to put this on. And then with like having a podcast, I do, I do so much like, you know, interactions with people. I found myself like not looking for the interactions with people on the street and, and kind of trying to avoid that just because I felt like, you, you know, it can be a little bit exhausting. But then in Europe, when I have the break and the perspective of like, I don't have a million things to do. I don't have all the pressure. I've, I'm just living life. Realize the beauty of those interactions and talking to someone on the street and, and, you know, just like how, like what you can get from that, what they can get from that. And like, yeah, it was just an interesting realization that I had. And it's like power of connection is extremely powerful. Yeah, and the and the opportunities that sometimes come from it. Like if you're only yep. talking to the people in your own circle, then you're not going to get any opportunities that are any different than the ones you've already had. So by branching out and being willing to put yourself in uncomfortable conversations, like you'd be surprised in some of the things that can come from it sometimes. Yeah. Going back to your values on the one of gratitude, talk to me about your, your understanding about the power of gratitude. You mentioned there's neuroscientists and there's actually some studies about the benefits of of practicing gratitude. Can you give me a bit of a rundown of that. Yeah. So don't fully quote me on this. I, I learned this from the neuroscientists <laughs> I've had on my podcast and the research I've done. But as far as I know, when we practice kindness and gratitude, it releases serotonin and oxytocin, which are the happiness chemicals in our brain. So the more that we do this, it, yeah, it is restructuring our brain and creating synapses. So we see the world through a different point, of, like through a more positive point of view. And the thing with um, gratitude and kindness is when we're kind to someone, it feels good. So then we want to do it again. So it kind of creates this positive feedback loop that, oh, I did something nice for someone that made me feel good. I want to do it again. And then that person feels, it's like, it's just, it creates these neural pathways. And then it's, I say to people to do gratitude, there's obviously different ways to do it. You can write a gratitude note to someone. You can just feel grateful for your life, but to turn it into a habit, like forming healthy habits is pretty hard. Most people will have a story in their head where they're like, you know what, New Year's resolution, I'm going to get really fit and healthy this year. And you get to like Jan 4 and you're like, <laughs> you know what, next year is my fit and healthy year if you're anything like me. So healthy habits, I, I understand are hard. So I say to people, a simple way to practice gratitude every single day, I'm hoping everyone listening right now can agree that they brush their teeth every single night. 
most, if I said you right now, what's more important, your mental health or your oral health? Hopefully everyone would answer your mental health, biggest killer of people aged 14 to 45 in the country, yet most of us aren't doing anything at all for our mental health. So a simple way to combine the two, I'm sure you've heard of James Clear, Atomic Habits. I, I learned this kind of habit stacking thing from him. So I was like, all right, when we brush our teeth every single night, it's something we do every day anyway. Just think in your head, what are three things I enjoyed about today? And then once you start doing that, each day you start finding more things and you're like, oh yeah, I had a coffee that was really nice this morning. It doesn't have to be big things. You might have had a conversation with someone that, yeah, just sparked a bit of curiosity. You might have had a shitty day and you got home and you got to have a hot shower, a hot meal and lie in your own bed. So many people don't even have that. So once we start finding those moments in each day, we go, yeah, there is a few good things going on. And it's it starts to reform our brain. It's neuroplasticity. It's changing our brain to see the world through a different lens. And it's, I say to people, don't go and do it tonight and wake up and go, oh, this shit doesn't work. I, I'm not, I'm not happy. It's like going to the gym and doing one sit up and waiting for the six pack to show up. We need to keep practicing this and turn it into a daily ritual and habit. And another good one, when you're at the dinner table, if you sit down with your family or your partner each night, just say, Hey, what are a few things you enjoyed about your day? Instead of talking about the dickhead at work and this and that, it's like, oh, let's make our conversations positive. It's a choice we make each day. So be conscious of them. Changing the framing can very easily change your life, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about making a habit, I see one of the things you do, and I know this is sort of jumping a little bit ahead. The one uh, yeah. percent club post story you do every day. Yeah. What What do you? So what? Tell me. What do you do every day? What uh, What is? What's your process? So the three things you're grateful for. What are the other things on on your list that you? Okay, so so I have this thing called the one percent club, and I'll tell you how it came about. I about two and a half years ago now, I was lying down doing a ten minute meditation, and all of us, I couldn't slow my mind down. And for some reason, my mind went to surely we can give 1% of our day to our mental health. I'm the mental health guy. And I knew that I wasn't actually even doing a lot of the things that I'd talk about are really positive myself. And I was like, I need the accountability. I learned through a men's group thing that I was a part of that you like, I think it's like 800% more likely to maintain a habit if you have an accountability group around you. So I was doing this meditation and I was like, yeah, surely we can give 1% of your day to your mental health. And I stopped the meditation midway through and I was like, I got to get my calculator out and work out what 1% of a 24 hour day is. Turns out it's just over 14 minutes. So I was like, okay, what can I squeeze into 14 minutes that I can do for my mental health? And then, yep, I've done 1%. So I was like, meditation, super important to me. I know all the data, all the science leads to meditation, such a great thing for our mental health and also gratitude. So I was like 10 minutes gratitude in the morning, four minutes gratitude at night dang, that's what I'm going to do. But I want the accountability group. So I just put on my Instagram story. Does anyone want to join a group chat? Back then when I started it, you could only have 30 in a group chat on Instagram. Um, and I think the first day I filled up 30 and I was like, every morning I'll just send a uh, YouTube link to a guided meditation to give a try. And every night I'll write three things I'm grateful for and put it on my Instagram story. That's what everyone sees. Um, but then I forward that story to the group chat. So they all see my gratitudes and then they in the group chat, write three things they're grateful for. So that started... 815 days ago there's like 1800 members now from all around the world and now they've changed to instagram you can have 250 in a group chat so there's like yeah nine groups of about 150 to 200 in each group and everyone writes their three gratitudes each day they like like each other's gratitudes they're all strangers and people have built communities now just through their gratitudes and yeah i think there's been close to like six or seven hundred thousand gratitudes written in wow. and it's completely free it always will be if you want to join just send out the good human factory a dm saying i want to join the club and yeah i'll add you in and every morning you get the meditation you can click a link every night you get the gratitude if you don't like it you can leave whenever you want so it's just a an easy resource it was kind of you like this from a business point of view, but I was always like, oh, I want to like build a more of a community. Gary Vee's always like give, 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 and then ask for something back. So I was like, how can I give to everyone? I was like, this is pretty easy. And I'm doing it for myself too. So now, yeah, I just, I've 
haven't missed a day for 815 days, sending everyone the meditation and doing my gratitudes and yeah, the feedback and the, yeah, the impact that it's had on so many that I get messages is just like profound. So yeah, it's a pretty special thing. That's awesome, man. With your meditation. So a lot of people get stuck not knowing how to meditate, you know, what, what should I do if I'm going to do a guided meditation? Where do I find one? What's a good one? You know what I mean? You've been doing this for two and a half years now. Let's say that yeah, math seems about right. About two and a half yeah. years since you've been doing this like accountability, I'm going to do the meditation and the gratitudes every day. How has your relationship to meditation grown over the last three, two and a half, three years? I mean, it's been amazing to be honest. If I'm being completely honest, the meditations that I send to the group, I don't actually do each morning. They're just like YouTube links. Cause it's a bit easier to do that rather than say, do you come on this morning? I just send a link. So there's actually something to click on. I have a few different meditation practices. One, I use a friend of mine's app called Manifesti and it costs something. So I don't want to promote to my audience this free platform to go and pay for an app. So yeah. I generally meditate on that, but it's just given me such clarity. The biggest thing that I've found meditation has done for me is when something happens that I used to react to the situation, I feel like now I can respond. It's like this like microsecond in between wanting to do something and going, okay, what's the truth in what that person's saying? Okay, what are they going through? It, it's helped me with that by just being a bit of a calmer person, by not letting those thoughts cloud my judgment and go, okay, no, wait. My thoughts quite often aren't true. We know that. 75% are negative and repetitive. How can I, yeah, actually witness those thoughts a bit more. And that's what meditation has done so much for me. And that's what you just said is obviously something that's super relatable to me, super relatable to a lot of people. It's like a lot of the time when we have these emotional outbursts doesn't mean like, not saying like massive things, they can just be like these small moments. We all know what, how we should respond and we shouldn't, but we don't have that lag to, you know, the right part of the brain take over and give us that time and clarity Mm. to respond in the right way. So it gives you that, bandwidth to be able to slow everything down, to put a lid on the emotions and respond Mm. in a more constructive manner without things spiraling out of control straight away. Yeah. And I spoke to um, this lady on my podcast last week, who's a neuroscientist from over in the UK, Nicole Vignola. And we were talking about this quite a bit. And we were talking about this fact that another really positive thing you can do if you feel like you are someone who does react after you act in a way that you might not really like to actually reflect on situations and go, how could I have acted differently? Okay, how do I want to show up next time in that situation? So you're sort of pre-planning if something goes like that again, going, no, actually I said I'm not going to act that way. I've done it time and time again and then I finish and I go, oh, I feel like a dick. I can't believe I you're said so that. Stupid, right? I feel like an idiot. But then you keep doing it. It's like, okay, let's reflect. Let's work out a different way. And, yeah, it's, I've just found meditations help me a lot with that. It might help other people, but for me it's been a huge one. So the meditations you do, um, are they guided meditations? Do you select the sort of – because I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking because I'm curious because I've Gone never – re- like because I'm, I'm massive on visualisation. Yep. But, like, visualisation for me comes naturally. I love it. I could sit in a visualisation for an hour and really enjoy it. But, like, meditation, the more, you know, traditional meditation, whether it be what people think about, close your eyes, focus on your breath, or the guided meditations. For me personally, I like you said, I'm aware of the studies and the benefits of all that, and I want to get into it. I've just never found the right practice for me that's been able to – Obviously, and there's like I've got to have discipline with it, but I've never found something that really worked for me. And I know a lot of people are the same. Just doesn't feel good. I've never found the right types. I'm always interested if people have had benefits. What what sort of meditations they do? I've kind of bounced. Do you do breath work? Have you I tried it? Nah, that's another thing that See, I'm like. You're probably like me. I'm someone who likes to do. I'm like mm-hmm. action. So if I'm being completely honest, most days I'll do like a 20 minute breath work that kind of has just a short meditation at the end of it. Once I'm in this state of like 
oh, I feel like bliss. And then it's like activity. So when I do my breath work, I, me and my partner, um, every morning wake up and then before we go on our phones or do anything, I'll, and then I'm like, I like to snooze the alarm. So I'm like, instead of snoozing, I'll stay in bed, mm-hmm. but I'll put a breath work on and I'll lie there and charge my body up for the day. And then I'm still getting another 20 minutes of lying there, but I'm actually doing something that's good for me. I finish, I feel alive. It starts my day. So that's kind of just like a little habit that I've found, but then there's different meditations. Like, and I go through stages where sometimes I'll be doing ones that are literally just sitting there with not much, like just a sound in the background. That's like a mantra meditation. I'll try and repetitively bring my attention back to that. And my friend who's got a meditation school who I um, just did a, a retreat with actually over in Bali. He describes it to me like so many of us start to meditate and go, oh, my mind just goes everywhere. It's so hard to quiet it down. And he's like, I've meditated for 10 years. It still takes me 10 to 12 minutes to actually get it to quiet down. So there's no such thing as a good and a bad meditator. There's just someone who meditates and somebody who doesn't. And how he says, he's like, imagine you've got like a puppy and you're trying to get it to sit down between your feet. What's it going to do? It's going to walk off. You're going to bring it back, walk off, bring it back. And eventually, oh, it starts to just settle itself a little bit. It gets a bit worn out or it goes there. So he's like, your thoughts are always going to go off. It's like that puppy running away, but you turn it into a bit of a game almost like, okay, how can I bring it back? How can I bring it back? And eventually, oh, the puppy's going to sit there and you're like, oh, I've got a bit of quietness. I say to people, it's like, you've got this 6,000 shots of ping pong going on in your head every single day, your whole life. Meditation is just putting the bats down for a few seconds. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I work a lot on analogies and visuals and stuff. So when I hear different things, I'm like, oh, some, hopefully some of those might have connected with other people. Yeah, but. yeah, no, it does. And it's just like, it's so easy to give up in that first 10 minutes. Where, like, cause the longer you can stick it through, if you, if you can be consistent and repetitive, you will get the benefits, but it just can be so, like you said, if you're someone that likes to do, and like, sometimes I'm, I'll get like five minutes and I'm like, fuck this, I'm going to go do something. And that's you know why the I mean? guided ones are good because you yeah. actually, it guides you through it. Um, but yeah, that's why if you feel like it's too hard to meditate, try and find breath work, do a 10 minute Wim Hof, look into it a little bit. Like we should always be trying to find new things that can help us. But yeah, breath work's been the big I've had conversations about breath work and this is like, goes Mm. back to the part of like, we, a lot of the time we know all the good things to do. It's just like actually doing them. You know what I mean? And if I've realized how much visualization, and that's been a big core of my life the last six, seven years. I actually had the same experience. You, the the way I got into all this was I I saw the the secret on Netflix yeah, and too. I watched that and it fucking changed my mind. And like, it's funny the secret. It's like I feel like it's a great entry into it. It's pretty basic. It's very philosophical, philosophical, philosophical. <laughs> um, but it changed my life. And then that realization was like the most powerful thing ever. So I've really held on to visualization. But I know the benefits of breath work and these sorts of things can be so powerful. And it just goes to show. It's like just do it. Like we I'll all give know. You, a good quote. you yeah. love this. Knowledge is knowing wisdom is doing. Mm. When I, I open all my keynotes with that, because I talk about stuff that's basic. You've all heard me talk about these values that everyone who's listening right now probably knows about, but he actually doing them. There's all the science and data and stuff leads to it all, but we actually have to do this stuff. So it's like, it's a quote to have at the back of your head to keep yourself accountable, not to judge yourself, but to go, mm, we all know how much sleep we should get, how much water we should drink, how much nutritious food we should eat. Um, that we should be in nature each day, exercising each day, but are we actually doing it? And yeah, it just keeps yourself accountable. Exactly. And I talk about it because like, I want people to realize that like people that you may see is successful, no one's perfect. You know what I mean? I do a lot of really good things and I'm really disciplined with a lot of things, but there are things that I'm not oh, as disciplined too. on that are fucking way harder for me. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just a part of that. Now, when you watched, when, do you remember, do you remember when you watched the secret? Like what were your thoughts going through say, your head? I wanted to go back to this cause this is a really funny story. And I fully forgot about this. It's a cool story. So I 
I just had a big fight with a girlfriend at the time. I remember it so clearly. I was in um, Mexico in a place called Acapulco for a surf comp and she was we're doing distance and she found out I did something dodgy or something. Anyway, 19-year-old Cuba is a bit different to Cuba now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember speaking to my older sister, Chloe, and telling her that I'm kind of struggling and she's like, you should watch this movie, The Secret. And I was like, okay. So I watched it and kind of was like, oh, well, this is really interesting. And I watched it with one of my best mates who um, his name's Wade Carmichael and he – Pro surfer, amazing guy, and he's like pretty skeptical on that stuff. Bit of like an Aussie, not a bogan, but like an Aussie bat, like kind of yeah, Aussie yeah. bloke, big beard. And I made him watch it with me. And at the end of that week, he won the bloody comp. And <laughs> at the end of the week, he said to me, "He's like, I was like, did that secret thing help you?" And he's like, "Man, I've just been like visualizing me on the podium all week, and then I won the comp. How good's this?" And I was like, "It worked for you. It didn't work for me, <laughs> but but I was exposed to that at yeah, probably nineteen years old. And I think there's so many things that we continually get exposed to, but it's once you start actually actioning it and really taking that mindset on and." I guess getting that evidence, like I love in the movie when they talk about the like car spots or it's like just visualize yeah, yeah, when you go yeah. into a car park. I use it all the time and it works most of the time. It's pretty good. A hundred percent. I think it's, and, and it's just like an entry because it's like, we talk about the changing the framing and the way you see the world, the way you see opportunity, the way you see challenges and, and all these things. It's such a powerful, it's like such a powerful starting point, but like, it's not the be on end all. Like you said, one of you're talking about like the process of, of coming up with your values and doing everything like action and actually actioning them is, mm-hmm. is a big part as well. So it's like, it's not ever the be all and end all, but I actually feel like positive visualization creates that belief within can actually help you take the action as well. Yeah. But it's not about just sitting in, you know, sitting on your bed and thinking about yourself doing all these things, which is why like, I feel like there comes a little bit of resistance from the people mm. online. They'll be like, Oh, that's bullshit. That doesn't work. It's like, no, it's a part of the recipe. Mm. It's not everything. Now, What's kind of like, because I want to get to know like your tool book and kind of what you teach people. So there's gratitude, there's your meditation, there's mindfulness as a whole breath work. Are there any other key tools that are part of your like mental fitness tool toolkit? Not necessarily. I mean, there's kind of, the way that I look at what I do is the, the whole vision of the Good Human Factory, I guess the mission statement is just connecting curious minds with simple mental health strategies. I'm no expert in anything but I've lived a life where I've learned some really valuable things. And now I'm lucky enough to speak to some experts in so many fields that I just try and be the conduit of information between people. So my keynote is just, I have two different keynotes right now. I'm working on some more, but um, I have one that's called the feel good workshop, which is kind of my most popular, which I've presented with like Apple, Telstra, McDonald's, um, thousands of students, like, like 50 corporates. Now it's crazy. It's getting really busy, which is really cool. And I'm just gathering feedback now and realizing that, because I simplify stuff, because I'm not trying to be that big doctor scientist that's telling everyone, hey, you have to do this. I'm like, no, no, here's just my story. Here's some really simple little techniques that go with each of these values. Now it's on you. Mm-hmm. And the angle that I take, I've realized I've found myself in somewhat of a bit of a niche similar to kind of Hugh Van Kylenberg. People will listen who know him and go like, you've copied his gem. Um, his gratitude, empathy, mindfulness, which I have accidentally. I, I, had fully made my keynote and then someone's like, you got to read this guy's book. Hugh, you'll like him. It's very similar to what you do. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, he's going to hate me. <laughs> and then I actually met him and had him on the podcast and we became mates. And he's like, mate, I didn't invent them. Like I'm stoked that some cool surfers doing it too. Mm. So yeah, my feel good workshop is just like a 60 minute keynote that, yeah, I do a lot of like lunch and learns at the moment. But the thing why I think people are really appreciating what I'm doing is I come in and say to them, all right, I'm here to talk about mental health, which normally 50 to 80% of the room are going to check out. 
And I go, I'm not here to talk about mental illness. Mental illness is something that's going to affect 20% of us, but mental health is something that affects 100% of us. So if you have a curious and open mind, I guarantee you will leave here with something. If you switch off because you go, oh, depression, anxiety, suicide, mental illness, that's not for me. We've just branded all mental illness as mental health. And I think it's wrong. I think we need to change that. So I've found myself now in a niche where 99% of the funding and the organizations in mental health focus on mental illness. I call myself a mental health organization, not a mental illness organization. I'm not qualified to help those 20%, but they can all still learn from the skills that I talk about too. It's all about like preventative rather than like treatment once it's at that point. Like that'll be for the experts and then there's certain treatments and plans and processes they can go through at that point. But like you said, everyone needs to be, maybe not everyone, maybe that's a generalization, but I would say like 95% of the world plus probably needs to actively work on their mental health, whether they're happy or not, because it's not something that you can take for granted. I don't feel like anyway. Yeah, exactly. If we're just like not thinking about it and not curious about it, then it can sort of slip away without us realizing. And then we get to that point of the cliff edge where we're like, we have to use these great resources we have here in Australia. But I always say to people like, we should build that awareness and check in with ourselves enough and, and just not, of us, not enough of us are doing it. And it's not our fault. We didn't get taught it at school. We didn't get taught emotional intelligence. We didn't get taught financial intelligence. We get put such on the back burner. I know you're, I'm, I'm excited to share your chat with you because I want to talk to you about um, education and doing courses and stuff. Maybe we can collab in the future because I feel like there's so many things that we miss out in the education system. So it's not people's fault, but it's your responsibility to start to learn them yourself after. 100% agree with you on that. I want to know what's the response like when you're in schools? Like are kids checking out? Are they interested? Obviously you go into schools, you're going to have a wide array of different personalities and upbringings and, and, and everything, but what's kind of the appetite for this sort of stuff amongst the students? I mean, it's been really well received if I'm being completely honest. Obviously you go in and get to say, Hey, I'm a pro surfer. It kind of perks up They're a like, few okay, years. Oh, it's guys. not. But then you go, Oh, but I'm here to talk about mental health. So you kind of lose some. But it's fun. I always go like, oh, obviously you want to engage every student in a room. But when you're speaking to a group of 200 people, tell me a single topic that you could talk about that every one of them will be engaged. Maybe tell them how to make a couple million dollars a month. Maybe you could engage them all. But it's almost impossible to engage a full room of people because, as you said, different personalities, different stuff. But I've found... I, I gather feedback from all of my workshops and get testimonials. I've had thousands of bits of data points now to show that the workshop is actually working. And that's been a huge one for the imposter syndrome to take the feedback and take the data. I always ask people, how'd you feel when you entered? How'd you feel when you left? And on average, people say they feel 5.8 out of 10 when they entered my workshop. And then on average, they say they leave at 8.2. So a direct 25% increase in mood is pretty special to know that the workshop's doing that. But I think students are just like, oh, I show videos of my ambassadors. I've built an ambassador team with the Good Human Factory. A lot of my friends who are extreme sport athletes and um, others like Ben Tudhoe, Paralympian, the, actually I'll set him up to come on your potty. You'll love sure. him. Yeah, I um, got bronze in the Paralympics last year, snowboard, border cross. So he's an ambassador. Storm Hunter just got second in Wimbledon in tennis. We've got like Ryan Williams, X Games gold medals, world champions in snowboarding, um, all these amazing people. And I showed this video at the start of my workshop with like a real cool, upbeat DJ song behind it. And I, of all the ambassadors, and then it kind of, it's right at the start. So then the kids are like, huh, this isn't the normal mental health. Maybe we'll actually listen to this guy. And then I go on to talk about this stuff that the teachers probably mention to him every now and then. I hear quite a few schools are saying, we're trying to do wellbeing. We talk about this stuff, but they don't really listen. And yeah, I get a lot of students after that you can tell about the boys and girls that would normally not listen to things like this come up and be like, oh, that was cool. Thanks. I learned something. (laughs) So I'm very lucky that I've found this niche of like getting to leverage off my profile and being a young pro athlete and it kind of being cool 
rather than a lot of other people, as I said, come in from the mental illness side of stuff and are a suicide survivor story or uh, a charity that are really trying to, the kids are like, oh, this is just something we have to do. Whereas when I'm there, obviously I'm not saying I get every kid in the room, not at all, but a good portion seem to be quite engaged, which is, yeah, really special. Yeah, I've gone back to speak my old high school a few times and it is like an incredibly rewarding experience afterwards. Like you speak to a couple hundred kids and like they want to hang, hang around for half an hour after asking you questions, taking photos. You mentioned that like the feedback, and I know you do a lot of like surveys afterwards so you can learn and, and, and see where you can improve. Have you, how do you emotionally take on like, cause like you would have saved lives, like genuinely like kids' lives. Like how have you been, do you think about that? Can you think about that? Like where does that all sit with you? Like the, 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 like, what you're actually giving to these kids, because like you said, the reason it's so needed is because they, they didn't mention anything like that to us the whole mm. time we're in school. I mean, at to- I've been working on this recently. I've kind of just been so like head to the floor. Like I always, and I feel like I have a very similar mind to you. No matter how much I do, I always feel like I could have done better and more. And I saw a psychologist recently because I talk about how important it is and not to drop the stigma. And I was like, you know what? I've worked with a sports psychologist, but I've never actually seen a psych. So I went and saw one recently and we were just having a chat about everything. And I was feeling a bit flat, like I'm doing all this amazing stuff, but I'm just not really, I don't know. I just wasn't feeling what I expected to feel like appreciation, not expectation. I always got to go back to that. So I wasn't feeling anything. And he said, it sounds like you're doing all this great stuff. You're practicing gratitude every night. But then he said, are you proud of what you're doing? And I was like, wow, that was the first time someone's actually asked me. And I sort of sat and thought about the impact that, yeah, I mean, I get, I'm very lucky. I get hundreds of messages every year. Well, I mean, multiple messages every week, especially after workshops and like different feedback on LinkedIn from clients and the feedback directly on the um, testimonial form. Like I have thousands of testimonials saying that it's really helped people. And then the 1% club, I have thousands of people, the podcast. And I just really feel like I'm living to that pursuit of connecting curious minds with simple mental health strategies. So there is times I try and sit with that being proud of what I've done, but I also understand the potential for how much more can be done. So I try not to sit on it. Yeah. It's, it's just, it makes it, and that's why I always encourage people. I know the temptation can be to go make money because then that changes life. And I think that's great. I can't, you know, that's what I did. I made money off a product that, um, well, it was doing good. It's helping people feel better, more confident, but it wasn't like I didn't chase my biggest passion first, but like now take it from someone that's made money. And I know everyone can be like, ah, it's easy to say once you've made some money. But if I had to start again, I wouldn't try and make money off doing some random things first. I would just feel like, what am I most passionate about? What am I most proud of? And build a life around that. Because I feel like fulfillment is even more powerful than happiness. Absolutely. And will keep you going when, 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 it's not, when it's not easy. I just want to ask you a few more questions before we wrap up. Uh, more like the logistics of the process of how like you made this happen. Because a lot of people may have ideas in, around whatever interest or you know, passion of their life. And it might not be a straight path to get there. And that's why I like having these conversations with people that have kind of rejected the norm and, and figured out a way to do life on their own terms. Like obviously you did that with the surfing, which was incredible, but that was largely talent based, you know what I mean? But then to go from that into another thing where it's like, you could have went and got a job or a trade or something, and it would have been much easier for you to earn a living, but you've decided to become, like you said, a keynote speaker and a mental health advocate. There's no roadmap for that. It's not, it's really not easy as we we're talking about off air to, to first get your foot in the door to do these. From the mo- moment you, your, your sister comes home and tells you that, and you realize you want to do something, you do those first speeches at, uh, at your old high school. How do you turn this thing into a business? Man, I don't know. If I look back, I'm just like, 
if you told me how much work it would have taken to get to where I am now, I don't know if I would have done it. I mean, absolutely, I would have, but I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had like no biz. I was pro surfer and then a tradie. I always feel like I've been quite intellectual and smart and always trying to, I don't know, I've just felt like I'm destined to do something in this life, to really do something more than just the norm. And obviously I felt like maybe that was my surf career. I'm doing that. But then now I'm doing this. I'm like, this is more like that thing that I felt like I've always felt. But, it, man, it's been a grind. I had the first year, 2019, oh, I think it might have even been 2018 when the idea kind of came out. So it's like five years ago now. It's like, where do you even start? So I just called my old school teacher, good friend of mine, um, Ian Wood, legend. He was also very entrepreneurial. He had like a first aid business. So he was a teacher, but then he had this business and would tell us he was doing well. So, And he was young and we were mates. So called him up like six years after I'd finished school and was like, Hey mate, like, how you going? Do you hear about the suicides at the school? Like he's like, yeah, tragic. And I was like, I want to maybe come to the kids at Narrabeen and tell them about my story and some of the things I've learned and maybe it can help one of the kids. And he was like, Oh, you're a good human. Good on you. Like, let's catch up for a beer. And I'll tell you why I said that because then we caught up for a beer and told him what I wanted to do. And he's like, there's actually a bit of money to be made in speaking too. There's an industry for it you should get into it if you're keen. I was like, sweet. And he was like, oh, you're such a good human. Like you should call it like the good human factory. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. So that's where the name came from. People must think that I call myself a good human, but <laughs> it wasn't even that. I just sort of like went like, oh, anyone who comes to the workshop or comes to the good human factory leaves a little bit better of a human. So that's the idea. So then it started with like, he was like, I was just about to go overseas to Hawaii. And he was like, go overseas, develop a bit of a keynote, and then come and do it at the school. And I look back and it was so bad, like PowerPoint, just like so shit. But I went and did it and started. And then if I went and did it again, I tried to like, cause at the time I'm scrapping to make a dollar to support my career. If I was taking a day off work, I couldn't afford that. So I was trying to charge money at the start, like 300 bucks and I was just getting nowhere. So like the first 18 months I would have done like three workshops. It was just like a idea really. It wasn't really a business or anything. And then COVID hit in 2020 and I was like, all right, all my surf comps got canceled. JobKeeper came on and my accountant was like, well, you can either keep being a tradie, but because obviously you're a pro surfer, that's more of your income, still like prize money and stuff. I was still making just as much sort of surfing under my ABN. So he's like, you can get on JobKeeper and spend maybe a month or two building the good human factory if you wanted and I was like, okay, because he knew how passionate I was and it was starting to be an idea, but I hadn't even set up bank accounts. I hadn't even like, it was just uh, people were paying me like a small fee if I did the two or three I did. And then COVID hit and I moved to Byron with a few friends and I was like, all right, let's actually turn this into a business. So I like opened like a pre-business accounts and I couldn't do the workshops though. So I did a lot of study. I spent like a few months really dialing in what these values are, how to build my keynote a lot better. And that's when I developed what is now the Feel Good Workshop and it's had a lot of alterations since then, obviously. But yeah, so I really established in 2020 what I wanted to do with the workshop. I started the merch. I started the podcast. I um, started the ambassador program. So that went for like a year, but then schools and everything's closed. So I couldn't be doing the workshop. So I definitely wasn't making money at the time. I was sort of scrapping by with some social media work, still surfing a bit. Like the comps came back in 2021. A few more workshops in 2021. And then 2022 came around and I yeah, started to realize, you know what, I'm probably not going to, I had to put the business on hold for four months in 2021 because I went overseas to compete in the world qualifying tour still for four months. So everything, like when you're the only person in your business and you go overseas for four months, everything stops. So I did that. I came home and I was like, you know what? I think that was my last trip around the world. 
I'm just as passionate about the good human factory. I'm starting to grow the podcast. I'm starting to grow the merch. The workshops are starting to get me a few more. Like I probably would have done like probably like 15 maybe in 2021 and maybe like 40 or 30 in 2022. And then this year I've probably yeah, done close to 100 already. So it's kind of wow. just grown. But like you said, to get your foot in the door at schools is tough because for one, you need to have all your checks and your police checks and stuff. And for two, the schools are like, is this guy coming in and trying to charge us money? And a lot of schools don't have budget. So I've just had to like work out so many different things. But I, I really feel for people who are trying to do it because I get a lot of messages from people going, hey, I love what you're doing. I'd love to go and do something similar. Can you give me advice? And I just say to people like, absolutely, but it's going to be hard. I've had so many leg ups because I have already a profile as an athlete. I um, have a sister who has a huge profile and a big podcast herself. So I've been on her podcast a few times where I talk about the workshops and like a lot of my work came from that for a long time. I still to this day get a workshop request a week because of that pod, those episodes I've done with my sister. So I'm like, I've had all the leg ups and help and I've only just really started to become profitable this year. So I feel for people who are trying to do it. So now I really want to give other speakers who are young and influential a platform under my business and give them work as well, especially my athletes who are ambassadors that transition out of sport. I feel like it's almost like the mindset that most people have finishing school. What am I going to do with my life? Athletes kind of deal with that when they finish their career and go, what am I going to do with my life? So I'm trying to build like a bit of a blueprint for other athletes to come and speak under, but yeah, it's been a grind. It's, um, it's been fun though. I mean, I'm stoked where I am now. Yeah. And on that, on that athlete thing, it's, we've had a few athletes on and everyone speaks about that identity crisis you get at the end of the career, but it's very different when like, okay, you're figuring your life out at 18, finishing school, but these people are 30 to 35 years old. They've never worked a proper job in their lives. Like where the fuck do I go from there? Yeah. Where do you, where do you go for people that could be an athlete? Do you have any tips or have you been around enough to kind of see, you know, positive things that help someone struggling with a little bit of identity crisis or where to go next with their life? Do you have any advice on, on where to start the conversations with yourself about to figure that sort of stuff out? I think just along your career, try and be really curious, look around at what other jobs people look happy in, look around at different, yeah, people who have kind of found a path after. And I think the biggest thing is just talk to people, network, get to know people. Like so many of my opportunities have come because I feel like I was, especially through the back half of my career, a pretty kind person and curious and actually gave people the time of day. And now I've got friends all around the world. I've got network in every industry now because of the podcast, but just like having that as a value, like trying to really be open to communicating and getting to know people because then you're going to ask more questions and you go, oh, that might be an idea after my career. So many people are so dialed in and focused, which is very important for your sport. But I think as well, just having that open mind while you're along your journey and trying to pick up other skills, trying to, whether you want to go into media, whether you want to go into whatever else after, just having an open mind while you're going through it. But maybe that's bad advice because that's what I did and I didn't quite make it to the top level. So it's just about, yeah, I think having a bit of a clear idea of who you are outside of your sport because it's not going to be there forever. Yeah, and what I always like to say to people when they're trying to figure out, you know, what what their next move should be or if even if the, for the ones that are earning good money but they're not happy, I just say like, and it's super simple, and I don't know if this is the best thing to do. It's what, it's what I always do when faced with a decision like this. And it's like, what, what would you do for free? Mm. It's like, what would you do for free? Because like 
there's there's a business in and and every passion, every niche there is. It's like, what would you be happy to wake up and do for free for the rest of your life? Like actually. Mm. And if there's you can find one or two things, then figure out a way to make that your life and make that your business. Because there's always a way in the world we live in with social media and technology and communications, there's always a way. Yeah. Oh, so, that's just, I mean, I know you talk about this too, and I'm pretty sure you got it tattered on you, finding your icky guy. And mm. I when I got into what I'm doing now, I had no intention of trying to be Obviously, I wanted to be financially successful, but I didn't really understand the path or how I was like, maybe the merch was going to be the place that I could scale and the other stuff's impact. And then once getting into it, I realized that, hey, if you get good at anything, you can get paid well for it. And public speaking is actually one of the highest paid jobs in the world, really. Um, and yeah, I had, it's taken me years to get to here, but like last month I had like a $45,000 month, which for Massive. owning your own business and just going around and talking to people. And every time you talk to someone, they're happy, they're feeling good about it. Whereas you work a job for someone and like you get home after the end of the week and you get your boss on your case, you're hating your life. It's like, and it's hard. It's very easy to say that when you are an entrepreneur that has had some success and I'm sure you probably get people probably look at you sometimes and go, it's easy for you to say. So I, I do feel for people who don't have maybe that drive or that opportunity. But like you said, just trying to find something that, yeah, you enjoy doing and then trying to find a career out of it is, is a good bit of advice. 100%. So final question. I love everything you've got going on with the good human factory. You've got obviously the events, the podcast, the community, every, all those amazing things, but where are you taking this? What's, what's the vision? What's the grand plan for this? There's always different ideas popping in my head, but one of the things, as I kind of alluded to before that I'm passionate about is trying to assist other athletes and people to speak underneath the good human factory because I know how hard it is to build the credibility with clients, with um, schools, especially to get your foot in the door. So if I can work out a way where they can speak under and they've already got the credibility of me and my business that I can bring other athletes and um, young, inspiring speakers. Cause I feel like that's what we need when we're at school, people that we can relate to. So that's one of the ways that I really want to try and scale the business. Um, I really want to try and grow the merch a bit more, the, some of the feedback and, stories I get from people. Cause I just have like simple merch that says, what are you grateful for? Or be kind to your mind. But the amount of times that I have people go like, Oh, I have people come up to me and they start these positive conversations. Like I think there's a potential to really grow the merch from a, that's why I'm going to talk to you later from an e-commerce point of view. I've never run any ads or done any digital marketing, but I've still had like two and a half thousand orders in the last two years. So there's potential. I feel like if I meet an e-com person who can help me with a bit of strategy, so we'll chat later. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. The podcast is always something that I want to continue to grow. I don't look at that as like a business venture. I just look at that as a networking tool and a relationship tool with people, which I love. Um, and then I really want to get into potentially like starting some more events. You've never been able to pay to come and watch me talk. It's always been a booked workshop through a client. Um, so I've got some ideas to throw some sort of unlocking the human potential event with it. a few different, um, a few people who have been guests on the podcast who are human performance specialists. And yeah, I've got some ideas in the next 12 to 18 months to try and throw some events that are a bit more open to the public. But, and then as well, from a business point of view, I want to turn something that's a bit more scalable. So I want to try and create some online learning stuff. The resilience project do an incredible job. I think they have 800 schools doing their program that pay like $20 a student that they pre-record and have this amazing package. It's brilliant but there's space for a bit of market share there, hopefully. So maybe I can, that's why I heard you talking the other day about wanting to do an education platform. And I was like, I bet you we can probably riff on some ideas on like a, a young 10 week course that you sell to schools. So you don't have to go there from obviously a business point of view. It makes it a lot easier to scale when you don't have to be there every time. So 
there are a couple ideas. Uh, I'm always evolving. I just employed my first person. She um, starts with me next week. So I've juggled everything by myself so far from the editing of the podcast, the merch, designing the merch, um, printing, the picking and packing, the every element of it has been um, a massive juggle to now, which I'm, I'm very proud of. But now I've got someone starting with me. I think it's going to help me sort of systemize everything, build a CRM, like my back end of like, reporting and stuff is so like all over the place. So I need that woman's touch. So I've got a girl starting with me <laughs> soon, which is really exciting. So sure. yeah, that's kind of what's coming up. I love it, man. Yeah. It's exciting times. A little bit scary when you hire your first person, but like it's that step you need to take if you want to, you know, have the impact you want. So yeah, let's chat. I'm very passionate about education and, and, and impact and, you know, changing the way people see the world and the possibility. So for sure we'll have a chat. Um, where's the best place for people to find you and everything you're doing? Anything about the good human factory we spoke about today, you can find on the website, thegoodhumanfactory.com. Yeah, you can find out about the workshops, about the merch, about the podcast and a few other things over there. If you want to find me, I'm on obviously all social medias, just at Cooper Chapman. Likewise with um, the good human factory on Instagram, TikTok, all the good places. But yeah, reach out if you have any questions about today. If you want to learn anything more about what I spoke about, just send me a DM. Or if you want to join that 1% club, just send a, a DM to the good human factory and yeah, we'll get you involved. Done. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another one in the books. Thank you so much, Cooper. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.